We're coming to the end of our series on the Apostles' Creed. It's been, it's been a long series. We started this way back in uh, February, before anyone had even heard of the coronavirus. Uh, and yet here we are, having walked through the creed in the midst of what, for many of us, have been some of the greatest upheavals of our lives. And I'm just so grateful in God's providence that he's had us walking through the creed, learning about these great doctrines of our faith, because as I've said again and again, the creed is more than just a collection of dusty doctrines. It is telling us the big story about God, about us, and about the world. Uh, And what we need more than anything else right now is perspective. We need perspective on our current moment uh, and what you believe right now about God, about yourself, about the world, about what's wrong with the world, about how the world will be made right, about the future. What you believe about these things makes all the difference for how you handle the difficulties and the complexities of the current moment. We have been given a better story. So we have been learning that story together, seeing from creation to now the very end of all time. And so today uh, we come to the very end, the last phrase of the creed, I believe in life everlasting. I believe in the life everlasting. Here, here's just my, my, my real, real simple point for today. It's this, what we believe about the future makes all the difference for our present. What we believe about the future makes all the difference for our present. Here, here's just a really simple example. Just imagine two guys, uh, two guys given the same awful, monotonous job. Let's say they said, you, you gotta work 80 hours a week in this terrible job. You gotta, I don't know, dig a ditch or, or tweak a widget or something like that. You gotta do this for 80 hours a week, no breaks. Uh, you've got a terrible boss. He's always coming in and yelling at you. He's got bad body odor. You know, you never get to eat lunch. It, it's a terrible job. Uh, And the first guy is told, if you do this for a full year, you will, at the end of the year, get $10,000. Now, how long do you think he's going to last? Some of you kids, I know 10 grand sounds like a lot of money, but I would guess most of you adults would say you would not last a couple of weeks. It just wouldn't be worth it, right? Now, imagine the second guy is told after a year of you doing this constantly, full-time, 80 hours a week, no breaks, no vacations, you get $10 million. Do you think he'll make it through? Oh yeah, you betcha. He will. In fact, he'll probably be whistling while he works. Uh, It'll probably be a breeze for him. Now, why the difference? Same two guys, same same job, same conditions, same situation, same scenario. The only thing different is the future hope. The future changes radically our experience of the present. You need a future hope. You need a future hope that is so good and so glorious and so beautiful that it makes it possible for you to face any difficulties and any suffering and any hardships of the present. You need a hope like that. It makes it possible for you to even undergo the greatest sacrifice, but in the end know that it will be worth it. You need a hope like that. Do you have a hope like that? That's a big question for today. Do you have a future hope like that? Is, and what is your hope? Is it just like getting to the weekend? Is it getting to your vacation that you're planning? Is it getting out of quarantine? 
<laughs> not sure when that's going to happen. Is it, is it getting to retirement? I mean, all of those things are fine, but they're not big enough. They're not beautiful enough. They're not good enough. They're not strong enough to give you what you need to push through the hardest and most difficult of circumstances. And what the promise of the creed is, what the promise of the Bible is, is that God wants to give you an absolutely unbelievable, indestructible hope. And that hope is called everlasting life. Everlasting life. What is everlasting life? What are we saying when we say that? Well, some of you kids may have um, read the book, Tuck Everlasting. Any of you guys ever, ever read that? Um, uh, I haven't read it, but I saw the movie, I think the Disney movie that was made on the book. And it's a, it's a really interesting book and story about a family who has a spring of water on their property um, and they don't realize it, but whoever drinks from this spring is given the gift of immortality. And they incidentally and unintentionally drink it uh, and they all, everyone in this family, in the Tuck family, becomes immortal so that they can no longer die, which sounds great, right? But a lot of the book is about how this gift of immortality has actually become a curse. It's actually a pretty terrible experience for them. And the protagonist of the book ends up rejecting the gift because of what a curse it is. So what I think we know is that our current way of existence, just going on and on forever, actually is not a really great idea at all, right? Life isn't better just by being longer. Do you, would you agree with me on that? Life isn't better just by being longer. So is that what we're hoping for when we say, I believe in everlasting life, just sort of an infinite extension of our current existence? No, thankfully, that is not what we mean when we are talking about everlasting life. The Bible, interestingly, I'm gonna get out my little flip chart here. The Bible, interesting, has two words for life. Uh, the first is... Bio, and you can guess what that means. It's where we get our word biology or biosphere from. It just simply means, it just simply means our, our, our biological, physical existence. That's bio life. But there's another Greek word, and that's zoe. And zoe doesn't mean biological life. It means manner or quality of life. And so when we talk about everlasting life, when the Bible talks about everlasting life, we're not talking about bio life, we're talking about zoe life. Jesus says in John 10, 10, I have come that they might have zoe and zoe to the fullness. We're not talking about an infinite extension of our present biological existence. We are talking about the current, the complete transformation of our existence to a new kind of life, a everlasting life, life as it was meant to be. That's what God wants to give us. Well, what is that? What is life as it was meant to be? Well, you know, during these months of pandemic, our family has done a couple of jigsaw puzzles. Um, actually, that's not really fair to say. It's more like half our family has done jigsaw puzzles because the other half of the family, me included, have very, very little patience for jigsaw puzzles. What happens to me is when we start a jigsaw puzzle, 
And, you know, you look at the big pile, you do like a 500-piece or a 1,000-piece jigsaw puzzle. It's very overwhelming, is it not, to see that huge pile of pieces on the table? It feels a bit hopeless. Like, how are you ever going to make anything out of this? And that is why the most important thing when it comes to a jigsaw puzzle is what? Can you guess? The picture on the box, right? The, the box, so that you have a vision of what you're working for. What we do is we set up that picture of the box on the table, and so we are constantly looking at the box and piecing, trying to piece it together accordingly. The box, the picture on the box gives you a vision of where the work is headed, of what all those pieces will look like once they're together. Well, here is the good news, friends. The Bible gives us the picture on the box. Through these powerful scriptures, they're called apocalyptic literature, through the book of Isaiah, the book of Revelation, there's other ones in the scripture as well, we get, through the prophetic work of the Holy Spirit, we get an incredible picture of what God will one day bring about in all of life, in all of creation. We get a picture of life as God intends it to be and what one day it will be. That is everlasting life. You know, I was a kid, I would try to think about eternal life, like living forever, and frankly, it sounded terrible to me. I mean, I just imagined myself wearing like this itchy choir robe, singing, it basically like a really long church service, like forever and ever and ever and ever. And that sounded like a real bum deal to me. And that's what many of us think about when we think about eternity. We have this image of leaving this world, leaving this present existence, floating around somewhere like with ringlets in our hair and you know, wings on our back and sort of some wispy, faraway place where nothing is interesting. <laughs> nothing is concrete. I do not, as I said last week, I do not think that it is an exaggeration to say that that vision of eternal life is pagan at best. I would say sub-Christian at best and pagan at worst. It's more like a Hindu or Buddhist vision rather than the biblical vision. Because what is the biblical vision of everlasting life? What is the biblical vision of our eternal hope? It is a new creation. It is a world made right. Just look at the picture on the box. Look at the picture that Isaiah gives. He looks forward to the day when all of the effects of the curse, when the serpent is crushed finally. And one day again, God will reign on the earth. He envisions a day when everything that has caused sorrow will be forgotten. Weeping will be cast away. He sees the day when violence and injustice will cease. When children will no longer be born into poverty or inequity. When work will no longer be frustrating. When society will experience art and beauty and economic flourishing, when every person will be completely provided for, when people will be secure in their housing and their dwellings. He envisions the day that even creation itself will be healed. Animals will no longer be carnivorous, apparently. You can have that pet tiger you always wanted. You could be the tiger king in the new creation. He sees the day that the power of death and the destructive of sin is destroyed forever. What a picture. What a picture on the box, right? And then look at Revelation. Look at the, the vision of St. John. He, borrowing heavily from Isaiah, says this, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven 
from God. What John envisions at the end of history is not humans flying away from earth up to heaven, but the city of God coming from heaven to earth. And he sees this urban and complex landscape of complexity. There is commerce and trade and cultural exchange and the the kings of the nations bring their goods into it. We see a place of beauty. We see a place of diversity where human culture and language and art are expressed in all their fullness. We see a place free of violence and tears and oppression and hurt and pain. We see a broken world made right. That is the picture on the box, friends. And it's amazing. It is a world made right. I love this quote from Chris Wright, who's actually coming to be with us here in the this, in this next spring for our missions conference. He says this, the biblical hope from Genesis to Revelation is that God should do something with the earth so that we can once again dwell upon it and rest or Sabbath peace, shalom with him. This is hope with a telescopic lens, hope on a grand scale, hope that includes not just you, but work and commerce and art and culture and cities and nations and animals and wolves and lambs and lions, hope that encompasses everything. In a million ways, God will gather what has been scattered. He will rebuild what has been broken. He will restore what has been ravaged by centuries of human evil and waste and fraud and injustice in a million zillion ways. God will put right what is wrong with the earth. He will reclaim what we have lost. God is getting his world back. What a majestic hope. Do you see this? Do you, is, is your hope this big? This big? Nearly everything we put our hope in is like sand through the fingers. Vacations are great, but they end. Food tastes delicious, but the meal is over. Kids and family are wonderful, but they also drive us crazy. You know, even falling in love, one of the most glorious human experiences often, always, leaves you relationally and sexually unsatisfied. All joy is fleeting. All delight is interrupted by suffering. Every joy is mingled with pain. Even in seasons like we're in right now, sometimes there's seasons in your life where it just feels like the pain and the sorrow are just unrelenting and it's never going to stop. And yet, we're given this picture of our future hope a vision of what is coming. And it is a picture of such beauty, such glory, such goodness, such wonder, that when we are there, it will feel like we have never known happiness before. And it will make all of our most horrific suffering and all of the most horrific things that humans have done to one another, it will make our oppression and our sadness and our sorrow and our pain feel so inconsequential like it was only a nightmare. This is the joy that is coming. As it says in the last battle, all their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. See, in the new city and the new creation, it's, it's not going to be boring. Oh my gosh. 
being with Jesus, seeing God face to face, being with one another, experiencing the beauty of this newly restored creation, the glory and joy and love will be always growing, always swelling, always increasing. As we go ever further up, ever further in, every Tuesday will be better than Monday, every Wednesday will be better than Tuesday, every Thursday will be better than Wednesday. It will be nonstop, continuous, everlasting, increasing glory. That's everlasting life. That's the picture on the box. That's our hope. But let's go back to where we started. What difference should this make for our present life? My simple point today was that what we believe about the future makes all the difference in the present. So what difference should our, what we believe about everlasting life what impact should that have on the way we live now? Well, I think most people think about um, eternal life this way, that you're sort of going along and one day you'll die, uh, and then you sort of enter into the new eternal life at some point, right? That's, I think, the way that the old heaven, earthly life ends and the new heavenly eternal life starts. I think that's the way that many of us think about it. However, the New Testament teaches that eternal life is not something that we are waiting to happen one day, but it teaches that eternal life is something that actually begins now in and through the person of Jesus. In John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus says, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So what Jesus is saying is, if you know me, eternal life can begin now, I've lived for you, I've died for you, I've risen for you, I've conquered death for you. I have actually now brought the first installment of the new creation into your heart and life right now. Trusting in him, you experience the power and the beauty of eternal life even now before death. Notice that Jesus says in Revelation 12:5, I am making all things new. Not one day I will make things new. He's saying, no, I've already begun to make all things new. My kingdom in the power of my eternal life has already entered into this world and is beginning to make things new. And so really this is an incorrect timeline for the believer. Really our timeline is more like this, where yes, one day we will die and this earthly life will over, but at some point when you come to know Jesus, you already enter into eternal life before your death has come. And so we are living right here. You are here in the overlap of the ages. Sometimes we say you have already experienced the, in, the, the power. You are already experiencing the power of Jesus' eternal kingdom now, even as you are not yet experiencing its fullness. Eternal life has already begun. And so what does this mean for you? Well, first of all, it means that we can experience fullness of everlasting life right now. Jesus says, I have come to give you zoe now, eternal life now. Even in the midst of this broken world, Jesus can bring his healing power and eternal life into your own experience now. Uh, in Tolkien, in J.R. Tolkien's uh, book, Return of the King, there's this wonderful scene where Aragorn uh, begins to to make himself known as the returning king of Gondor. And the whisper and the gossip that's going around the people is 
that he is healing the sick. And they say this, the hands of the king are the hands of the healer. The hands of the king are the hands of the healer. And when we look at Jesus in the gospels, that's what we see. We see that the hands of the king are the hands of the healer. Jesus' hands bring Zoe. He puts his hands on the broken people and Zoe comes. He puts his hands on broken bodies. He puts his hands on broken souls. He puts his hands on broken minds. And his Zoe, his eternal life, already begins to enter in. That's what you can do. You can bring to Jesus your broken past. You can bring him your broken marriage. You can bring him your broken job. You can bring him your broken heart. You can bring him your broken life, and he will put his healing hands on you, and Zoe will already begin to enter in. He wants to give you that eternal life even now. It will not come in fullness until this new creation comes, but he wants to give it to you now. What broken thing do you need the healing hands of the king to touch? You can know it now. But that's not all. It also means this, is that our calling as believers is to be ambassadors or representatives of that new creation, that new city that is coming. St. Augustine, in his great book, City of God, wrote that if you are a Christian, you have dual citizenship. You are still a member of the old city, the city of sin, the city of man, and yet you are now, through Jesus, also a citizen of the kingdom of God, and it is the call now of all Christians and all churches to be ambassadors, representatives, previews of the new city in the midst of the old. So what this means is this. Let me put it this way. This means, on the one hand, that we are more optimistic than any pessimist about what is possible in this world. Because we know that Jesus is already making things new and that he's calling us to partner with him in that work of renewal. Going back to the puzzle analogy, we are people who are best equipped to make a difference in this world because we actually have been given the picture on the box. We have the blueprints of the new creation. We know where creation is heading and we're called through Jesus to seek that city now, to be ambassadors and representatives of that city in the here and now. So what do we do? Well, what do you, do you, you look at the picture on the box and what do you see? You see a world free of suffering. And so what do you do now? Well, you know, you can't alleviate all the suffering, but what do Christians do? We give ourselves to the suffering of the earth. We look for places of suffering. We hear the cries of the oppressed. We look for those who are in pain. And we come alongside them and give ourselves in love. Why? Because we see the picture on the box. We see that that's the kind of world that Jesus is bringing. Or what else? What else do we see in the picture on the box? We see a city of justice. We see a city, I love what Isaiah says, where no child is ever born into adversity. And so what do we do? Well, we look around and we see the injustice happening around us. We see, we just notice the children born into adversity in our own city, that there are thousands and thousands of children in our own city who just by nature of where they are born have two to 300 times greater chance of growing up and living in poverty. And and that breaks our hearts as the people of God. And so we give ourselves to that. We give ourselves to the work of justice, to finding out what's wrong and to work for the healing. Why? Because we see the picture in the box. We know the kind of world that Jesus is bringing, and he wants us to seek it now. What else do we see? We see a city of diversity. We see a, 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 people where, a city where people of every tribe and tongue and language and culture live at peace around the throne of Jesus, Revelation 5.9. So what does that mean? It means we seek that reality now. It means that we are discontent with homogenous communities. It means we help our church and help our communities to become places of greater welcome 
for people of diverse races and classes and backgrounds. And we work hard for it. And we even find out why our church at times has been an unwelcome place for people of diverse races and cultures. And we do this not because of some like secular call to diversity. No, we do this because of the objective truth of the word of God that gives us a picture of what God intends that new city to be and how he wants us to seek it now in the midst of the old. We look at the picture on the box. Jesus calls us to be ambassadors, representatives, of the new city to come. And so we are more optimistic than any pessimist about what is currently possible, but we are more realistic than any optimist about what is attainable. (laughs) Because we are under no delusion that we can change Richmond, or that we can change the world, or that we can somehow bring the kingdom of God. No, friends, sin and evil is still strong. The devil is still mightily at work. Three times in Isaiah 65, God says, I will create the new creation. Only God can do it. Only God can bring about the new city. Only God can transform. And so we do work, but we do it with humility. We do it with humble hearts. We do it knowing that we are simply representative ambassadors of the city to come, an outpost of the new in the midst of the old. And all of our efforts and all of our work are just prayers of longing for the world that one day God will bring. So we're not cynics. Uh, We're also not hopeless. We seek the world to come, knowing that only Jesus in the end will bring it. So friends, let me say what I said in the beginning. What you believe about the future makes all the difference for your present. What you believe about the future makes all the difference for your present. And here's the good news, friends. The hope of that eternal everlasting future is available to you right now. Right now. Jesus says this in Revelation 12, 6. To the one who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. To the one who is thirsty. Who gets the hope of everlasting life? Not the good. Uh, Not the righteous not the worthy, the thirsty. The thirsty who long for hope, who long for a renewed creation, who long to see God face to face, who know their own sin, who know their own brokenness, and yet long for the healing of Jesus to come is the thirsty who get the hope. So will you get in touch with your thirst? Will you get in touch with your longing? And will you look to Jesus and say, Jesus, Give me the hope that your hailing hands alone can give. May Jesus give us that hope even now so that we can be people of hope in the world. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are in such need of hope. Our world is in such need of hope. And yet, what an everlasting hope that we have. How amazing that unlike so many people around us who are just flailing and fighting or hopelessly giving up on a better world. Thank you that as Christians, we actually have the promise of a better world to come. Uh, And that we know that you are bringing it, Jesus, and we actually see a picture of what it will be like. A world free of pain and sorrow and suffering and injustice and oppression and sorrow and sadness. That that world is on the way. That Jesus, you are already bringing it. 
So help us to be people who enter into eternal life, even now, and who are ambassadors, representatives of that new city that is to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.